Hey, well, let me encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word this morning as we come to 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 12. We're going to read down to verse 17 today. This is such a, oh, we are so blessed. God loves us so much. Like, I love that this is in the Bible. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I think he's deserving of more than a clap in the front row, wouldn't you say? That's like summing up the whole Bible. We can go home. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But... I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. What a text. What a text. Good morning, church. Good to be back. Good to be back. You guys, I got to tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? Are we okay with this just for a second? Uh, I go last week to uh, preach at a different church. Not that I don't love you guys. This is actually a story of how much I love being home. Uh, I preach off of an iPad. I put some notes on there for the sermon, although you could probably see me preach and notice that sometimes I don't need this iPad that much. But, you know, when you start your sermon with a quote, you want it written down for you, that kind of thing. Well, I go to a church in the Bay Area, uh, a church that we love and support and are like-minded with, and uh, do the sound check. Everything's good to go. Laptop or the iPad comes up. Laptop, who uses those anymore? The iPad comes up, and uh, everything's good to go. I'm the last part of the service last week, and I get up to preach, and the, my notes won't come up for the message. And I'm in a foreign place where if I was here, I would make a joke. We would have fun. I would just tell you about my day. I'd sit right here, and I'd make someone on the tech team figure that out for me, right? But I have like a moment, okay, where I have to decide. So I'm talking to everybody as I'm scrolling through and and exiting out of the program, trying to exit back in. My bag is in the front row. My phone is in there. I'm trying to hotspot my phone onto my iPad to see if it will speed up as I'm just talking out loud (laughs) about nothing. 
making jokes and telling them how much I appreciate the people that have moved up here from their church and come to our church. And it was, <laughs> it was the preacher's worst like fear. I, I mean, Aaron was like, man, you must have had a pit in your stomach. I was like, I was so shockingly traumatized, <laughs> well beyond a pit in my stomach. And so I had two choices, make an issue of it or look at the text and preach the text. And I decided that I'll trust the Lord and I preached the whole thing from memory. Yeah. So it's not to like celebrate me. I hope that's not what's coming across. But what's true of today is you, you are going to hear a message for sure. I, I mean, it's up for the record. <laughs> but even then, I, the word is in my heart. And I think the Lord used that in some way to remind me that the Lord, when you do the work, he'll get the words out of your mouth. It was crazy. I never want it to happen again, but the Lord used it, okay? <laughs> All right. First Timothy chapter 1, let's go. All right? First Timothy chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, get one. It's on your phone, okay? Everyone can get one or your iPad or your laptop if you brought one, which, hey, I'm not against laptops. Um. My name's Scott, I'm the lead pastor here at Doxa Church, and we're going to get right back into our verse-by-verse -verse study on 1 Timothy. We're calling it the dearest place on earth. If you didn't know where that was, you found it. It's not a Disneyland, it's a church, y'all. We found it, okay? And it's not perfect, why? Because I'm your pastor. And it's not perfect, why? Because you're here. But still... We found it to be the dearest place on earth, and God has some things for us. He wants to reveal through this letter that Paul wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to Timothy regarding the church in Ephesus. So many things we can learn from today, and so we're going to just jump right into this. The title of the message, what a great scripture this is. The title of the message, Salvation for the Chief of Sinners. Sometimes it's good to take a moment to reflect on understanding what's actually going on. Do we know what's happening in 1 Timothy right now? Paul has sent Timothy to confront the leaders of the church and literally tell them, get them to stop teaching what they were teaching. Anyone just, if you were to put yourself in your, these shoes, some of you have put yourself in these shoes. Some of you, your story in this last season is that you've had to approach the leadership of the church you had gone to at one point to address that there was another gospel that seemed to be being preached in the midst of the church that you had loved for many years. Some of you, that's your story. But if it's not your story, can, can some of us at least relate to, here's Paul, or here's Paul telling Timothy, young Timothy, he's 35 years old, you're going to go and you're going to confront the leadership of this church. Anyone going to have a little bit of anxiety over that? Anyone going to be a little bit freaked out? Because it's not just that you have to confront the leadership, because here's what's happened. Sadly, maybe you have had that moment in this last chunk of time. We'll just call it the COVID season. You had addressed something, and, and it was not received, and that's perhaps why you're here even today. But imagine having to go in and confront the leadership of the church and not just say, hey, what you're teaching is off from the gospel, but I need you to stop doing it. And I'm coming on the power and authority of the apostle Paul, who is the spokesman for our Lord. They were butchering the Old Testament is what they were doing. They were butchering the Old Testament in such a way that they were turning it into a means 
for the self-righteous to earn their own salvation instead of a mirror for sinners to see their need for a savior. And Paul's serious about this. Do not mess with the gospel. Do not mess with gospel grace. They were using the Bible unbiblically. It was leading to this ability that you could save yourself through your own self-righteousness. And so what Paul is going to do today, and it's the most, uh, one of the most stunning passages in all of Scripture, Paul uses his personal testimony as living, breathing proof that salvation is by grace and not by person's ability to keep the law. What's interesting about this text as well, though, is that underneath the surface of why Paul is giving his personal testimony to, in fact, establish the reality that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is that this text specifically speaks to the one, and this is an age-old struggle. Some of you in this room, some of you may be listening in on live stream who have struggled, who are struggling to think that God can save you. Some of you maybe have been around the Christian faith and you are not in the Christian faith because you've never truly put your faith in Jesus. You've never truly seen a new life emerge out of that faith whereby you seek to love and serve and follow Jesus. And some of you, you're a Christian still living in this doubt, still living in this discouragement, still wallowing in this idea of struggling to think God can save you because what you've done is too bad and how long you've done it for is too much and how many opportunities you've had to stop is too many and it's been going on for too long and the lie in your head is that there's no way, there's no way God would, there's no way God could save me. Part of why Paul writes this is to show in his own testimony that he himself is proof. Listen, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. The only thing that keeps you outside of what God can do in your life is if you lose the sinner's part. If you qualify yourself as outside of the bounds of being a sinner, yes, then you have a far bigger problem. But if you are one in the boat who recognizes their sinfulness, who sees it persistently in your life in some way, shape, or form, if you struggle to think God can save you, then this passage is incredibly, incredibly encouraging today. And so I want to show you out of this text that for those struggling to think God can save you, Paul has an incredible encouragement for us. And here's the first thing he says. If you struggle to think God can save you, don't underestimate the power of grace. Don't underestimate the power of grace. Christian, let me ask you. Do you remember your conversion? How many were saved more than 10 years ago? Hands up. How many were saved more than 20 years ago? How many were saved more than 30 years ago? How many were saved more than 40 years ago? Praise God. How many were saved more than 50 years ago? How many were saved more than 60 years ago? You remember your conversion? It's awesome. 60 years ago. 
more than that, Paul never forgot his conversion. Paul never, it never entered his mind to think he wouldn't carry with him, even up to the present day, the story of his conversion. It, it kind of lived with him. He, he was so thankful for, for it on a regular basis because of the fact that he lived in perpetual recognition of it. He couldn't help but give thanks for it. He, he starts and says in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength. See, thankfulness is the beginning because here's what he realizes, and this is all coming out of salvation being a gift of God's grace. His thankfulness of what he's going to thank God for is all rooted in his salvation, which is a gift of God's grace. What do you do with a gift? You receive it. You don't... You don't you don't feel bad about how much someone paid for the gift and keep talking about it. You ever had that, like a Christmas or a birthday or something like that? They're like, man, I know how much you spent on this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'll get you back on the next Christmas. You know, if I get paid more, if that bonus comes, I'll pay you back. It's like, who wants to hear that when you've given a great gift? What you want to hear is, do you enjoy it? Are you enjoying the fullness of what it is? They want to see you love it. They want to see you, and out of that comes this thanksgiving. Paul's thankful for so many gifts. Listen, your salvation, if you are in Christ, your salvation is like a Russian doll. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, it's like this one big gift that you're freed from sin, but then you open it up, you're like, oh my gosh. Right? And it's just like all these little gifts, and it's like almost unending how many gifts there are that come directly connected to your salvation in Christ, this grace that was poured out on you, he thanks God for many, many things here. I want to just go down this list of all these areas that are blessings, that are little mini gifts within the bigger gift of salvation from sin. He says, I thank you, I thank him who has given me strength. Paul was given strength by God. What's the context? Look at verse 11. Paul's been entrusted. What a privilege with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And the text is interesting because it's looking, he's looking back to a specific moment when the strength first came. And we see who it came from. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. He's making a beeline back to his salvation story. He's making a beeline. Where were you? Were you in a dormitory when you got saved? Were you on the street and someone was witnessing? Were you in church and someone, some preacher shared the gospel and you came to faith in Jesus? Were you at one of those old tent revivals? Like, well, what's your story? Paul's like, I'll tell you mine. I was walking on the road to Damascus. And I was looking to continue my persecution of Christians. And I was knocked off my horse by Christ. Jesus. See, the other apostles saw Jesus, who is the Christ. Paul was confronted by the glorious Christ and saw him as Christ Jesus. Most people think the reason he spoke of it as, uh, spoke of Jesus as Christ Jesus is because he got Christ in his glory on that road. And the interesting thing about how Paul responded when Jesus knocked him off his horse, Christ Jesus, is he calls him Lord. Do you remember? Who are you, Lord? In Acts chapter 9, two things that Paul, up to the point on the Damascus road, he would have never confessed, that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus Christ is Lord. 
He's now confessing both. Christ knocks him off that horse. He is confronted with who Jesus is. He confesses him as Lord in Christ over his life. And now he's saying, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus. Who's Lord? Our Lord. Why is that important? Because Paul has to go tell Timothy to get in with those leaders that are going to be probably very contentious, probably very difficult to deal with, and he needs him to understand that the same strength that was given to me through the grace of the gospel that I believed in is the same strength, Tim- Timothy, that's given to you. You don't walk in your own strength as you enter into the ministry that God's given you to do. He's Jesus Christ, our Lord. So as Paul's reminiscing about his testimony, about his conversion, he's going, that same power, that same strength that came from salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is true for you if it's true for me. It's our Lord. And the same Lord, he says was the one not only who strengthened him, but because he judged me faithful. So here's another thing he's thanking him for. Now, this is not saying that Paul, and, and this is how so often it is in churches, you know, oh, God looks for who's going to be a ringer. God looks for the varsity Christian to be, and he picks them out of the crowd, and we feel so noble about ourselves. Yep, of course he picked me. He knew what I would t- contribute to the team. Uh, no. When we see he judged me faithful, I love what the early theologian Augustine said about this passage. He said, quote, God does not choose anyone who is worthy, but in choosing him, renders him worthy. Nothing special to do with you. Paul knew it. Now, it didn't stop Paul from working with everything he had in him, right? He was committed to the work that God entrusted him. 1 Corinthians 15, we were just there recently. I worked harder than any of them. Is Jesus worthy of that? Yes. We ought to work harder than any of them, though he could say this, though not I, but the grace of God working through me. He considered me trustworthy. It's his grace that kept him. It's the grace that considered him faithful, that considered him trustworthy. It's God's transforming grace that turned him into a trustworthy servant who was, here's another thing he's thankful for, appointing me to his service. All this grace poured out in his ministry. He was placed in the ministry. It's the word for service. And all this is true about Paul. All of this is true about Paul in spite of who he was. Here's the who I was part of his testimony. Listen, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, one thing becomes very clear. Who you are is not who you used to be. Isn't that true? And and you can think back, and if you're truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the things that becomes clear is you can think back specifically. It's not general. It's not vague anymore. Oh, I kind of did a few bad things. Mm Mm-mm. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more I kind of did a few bad things doesn't really fit the mark anymore. It's clear. It's obvious. When light penetrates the darkness, the darkness doesn't have anywhere to hide anymore. Darkness doesn't blend in when light exposes it. And you see it for what it is. Paul had this profound who I was testimony piece. So some of you, when you think about your own life, you you think about it and think, my sin is too bad. 
How often do you hear that, that, that idea? Oh, my sin's too bad. Oh, God wouldn't save me. Oh, God couldn't save me. Oh, God doesn't want to deal with me. Oh, oh, God has had to put up with me for too long. I, you know what? I'm pious enough to not even go back to the guy because he's probably sick of me. And there's a false, arrogant, false humility within that that drives you away from a Lord who is giving you a picture in the Apostle Paul that trumps whatever it is that you come in here with today. You, you can call me and give me that kind of pity party once, here, once this is your resume. You ready? Once this is your resume, then call me. I'd be like, you know what? I don't know. God may be dealing with too much with you. Okay? But call me when this is your resume. Are you ready? Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, okay? So call me when you've made it your mission to blaspheme God. That's your major. That's what you've done. That's what you've committed. That's, what, that's your social media. You're an influencer, okay? You're an influencer for blasphemy of God. Acts 26, 11 says not only was Paul committed to blaspheming Christ, but he was also encouraging others to do the same thing, to be blasphemers of the way. What is to blaspheme? It's to lift up God's name in vain. It's to lift it up in an untrue way, something that's not consistent with who God is. Paul delighted in that, and he sought to bring others into this blasphemy. Another word that maybe we could use today to describe blasphemy would be slander. Paul spent his days post the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ blaspheming God and blaspheming those who followed him, but it wasn't just that. It says he was a persecutor. So this would also mean that he was out and he was not only instigating Christians to be put in jail and punished for their faith in the way, that's what they called it, because Jesus is, of course, the way, the truth, and the life. The way, not a way, but the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father through but by me, Jesus said. And Paul is persecuting them. He's imprisoning them. He's signing off on their murder of Christians. And to be an insolent opponent means he did it with such arrogance it almost gave him glee. That's Paul's story. He knew it crystal clear. He didn't hold anything back. Whatever you're walking in today, I don't think many of you can say, yeah, I've spent years of my life blaspheming God. I've spent years of my life persecuting the church. I've spent years of my life putting people into prison or murder for following Jesus. And I've spent years of my life absolutely delighting in every second. There's some testimonies like that. I'm sure there are. But I think whatever you're walking in more than likely can fit within this parameter Paul's giving. And yet he says this, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, and here we go. Christians, one of our favorite words is three letters, not four, one T, not two, but, okay, that is our word. We are a but people to the glory of God. Here's who I was, this is what I've done, but Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Somebody's excited about the word but today. Come on. Someone has to be. That is the best word in the Bible. He says, but I received mercy. I love what one of the Puritans said about this phrase. He used the phrase, I was be mercied. 
He's getting at the fact that he was, he was smothered with it. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. God just poured it out on him. I was bemercied. Isn't that an awesome way to say it? Our good friend Thomas Goodwin. That's how you describe it. I was an insolent, arrogant opponent, a persecutor of the church, and a blasphemer, but I was bemercied. Church, that's the testimony of every Christian. You were this, you were that, you did this, you did that. You looked at porn, you had sex outside of marriage, right? You were violent, you were wicked. You were engaged in all these ungodly ideologies. You never neither thanked God nor glorified God for all the good things you have been given. You name the list, and we could go on and on and on about sin, but you were be-mercied. You did nothing. You were just be-mercied. Because, he said, I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Oh, well, that's why. Let's him off the hook. He did it ignorantly. All right. Well, God lets that slide, apparently. We good? I got mercy because turns out when God looked at it, it wasn't a big deal. I did it in unbelief. Ignorantly. Whoops. Listen, that, that's not the way to take this. I, I think too many people I, I've heard describe it. Well, it's okay because Paul is saying, in a sense, that his sin was excused because he did it ignorantly, that God kind of let it slide. Uh, don't hear that out of the text. This is when it's really important, loved ones, to note that Paul comes from a Jewish context. It's really important to note that in the Old Testament, there is a difference between intentional sins and unintentional sins, they were both sins. He's describing the kind of sin that he committed. He knew what kind it was. You look at Leviticus 22, for example, in verse 14. You look at Numbers 15, verse 30. There is a difference in the whole Old Testament behind a, what, he, what the Old Testament would call a high-handed sin or a sin in defiance of what you know to be right versus you are sinning in a way that you think you are doing right while you're doing it. Intentional versus unintentional sins. When Paul is saying, though my sin, he, uh, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, what he is saying is his sin wasn't done in defiance of what he thought to be right. He was wrong. But it wasn't done in defiance of what he thought to be right. His sin, his unbelief, was the basis of the blindness of his ignorance. This man had a zeal without knowledge. It's no excuse. He's just stating the facts. He's just articulating, this is the kind of sin that I committed. It's not to excuse it. It's to say, this is it. This is the kind of sin that I had committed, but... I receive mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This word overflowed is another word Paul made up. Don't you love how Paul makes up words all the time? Because when you experience God's grace, his grace is so profound, you like need a word. So he takes a word like abounding and he puts the word where we would get hyper in the English out of it, and he goes, it was hyper-abounding. It's like taking this water bottle and sticking it under the Niagara Falls. That, that's grace. It, it's like um, 
putting this inside of the ocean and the ocean just filling the, it was overflowing. You cannot contain the grace of God. It was so significantly overflowing. It has the similar theme of Romans chapter five, verse 20, when Paul says, namely where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So profound, so hyper was this grace that it took Paul's unbelieving heart and filled it with faith by grace in Christ, and so flooded his hateful heart that that hate in his heart for God's people turned into love for his people. Notice what it says. It overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's talking about union with Christ. That phrase, in Christ Jesus, is a glorious reality because when you are united to Christ by faith, you live in this status of faith in Christ as opposed to unbelief and love for God and his people as opposed to hate for God and his people. He says, that's how profound the grace of God was to me. And he's lived in that state ever since his own conversion. And all of this is by grace. All of this is in spite of his past. All of this is in spite of his ignorant unbelief. This is Paul's testimony. But it's not unique. This is the same kind of thing that can be true for anyone who lays down their self-righteousness and instead, by grace through faith, picks up a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're still struggling to believe that God can save you, the first thing I would say is do not underestimate the power of God's grace. It is stunningly overflowing. But the second thing he tells us is don't overlook the prototype of Paul. Don't do it. Don't miss it. Don't think this doesn't apply to you. Here's perhaps the central part in this entire section when he says the saying is trustworthy. Okay, now I gotta let you in on something here. This is one of Paul's sayings. He loves this saying and he uses it five times only in the pastoral epistles, okay? So we're right here. This is the first use of this saying. This saying is trustworthy. He uses it five times in the pastoral epistles and you'll find it nowhere else in the Bible. It mattered that Timothy understood this. It mattered that the gospel was clear. He's saying, this is trustworthy. From the earliest days of the church, there was an understanding that if you could take all of this book and boil it down to a sentence, cliff notes this puppy, make it tweetable, here's what you would get. This saying that he's gonna give is what you would get out of this. And he says not only that the saying is trustworthy, meaning it's a trustworthy presentation of God's message as revealed in the Bible. If you're like, ah, I'm not into reading, we'll, we'll just read five words. Okay, a few more. Someone's like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's eight words. Jesus Christ came, saved sinners. Okay, whatever. You get it. 
eight words to understand the fullness of what God has revealed for us in the scriptures and in his son. And he says, and the saying is deserving of full acceptance, which is to say it's to stop all of us in our tracks. What Paul just said is, what I'm about to say to you is trustworthy, and it bears its weight on every human heart who hears this. Even if you're like, ah, I came here with a friend, and I'm not in dead religion. I don't do that thing. That was my dad, right? It was like, hey, I hear you, Scott, but like religion's not my thing. Well, Well, dad, now that I'm sharing the gospel, it's becoming your thing that you have responsibility to take in. This is deserving of full acceptance. It bears its weight that you respond to what is about to be said to anyone and everyone who hears this. It applies to all of us. Here it is. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Came, not into existence or being, Okay, this isn't like, oh, he was born for the first time. No, 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 came into the world. Not a new existence, came from heaven to earth. You know, the place where we live, the place where we sin. He came there and he came for one specific purpose and one specific purpose only to save sinners. Here is the glorious good news of the gospel. God saves sinners. Are we excited about that? Here is the reality for someone who goes, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. You know, by my own standards, I'm pretty righteous. I kind of have my, you know, my own morality. I I listened to something uh, recently in a podcast about some unbeliever using their Chick-fil-A points to buy lunch for a whole shelter of kids, which, praise God, is awesome, right? But, but, but that won't save you. And, and here's the thing. While we're celebrating Jesus Christ saves sinners, Jesus Christ only saves sinners. Which means if we were to see ourselves rightly, there's an offer that's universal on the table. <laughs> because you've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because you have all disobeyed God And the standard isn't society's level of morality, which is, by the way, moving goalposts constantly, but is the rock-solid foundation of the law of God, the word of God. We see that each one of us, and held against the standard of the word of God, held against the standard of the law of God, fall woefully short of that which God has laid out for us. Not only that, we come out of the gates sinners, You sin because you're a sinner. That's the problem, right? You are lost in sin. You are dead in your trespasses. You are disobedient to the Lord. You are unfaithful. You are un... This is us. But here's the good news. As tough as that may be to hear, you're in the category of someone who could get saved. And if you out of that, if you get out of it, you, you, you don't have it. Why? Because he came to save sinners. And you wouldn't be one. The dangerous thing is you are one even if you don't think you are one, but now you're not in the realm of salvation. And Paul says, of who I am the foremost. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You know what? When they had a competition to see who was the greatest sinner, I won first place. 
I'm the chief. I'm, I'm first. I'm foremost. I'm the worst of sinners. That's what Paul's saying. <laughs> you may think Paul's being super pious, right? Isn't that kind of how small group goes sometimes? Like, oh, just like slow playing it, hardcore. Someone come in, oh, I'm just the worst of sinners. You're like, man, you're pious. See, I don't think Paul's trying to be pious with us at all. I think he literally believed and he could tell you, here's why, wait, 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 why, why do you think I'm, I'm trying to be morally pious about this? I, I, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor literally of God and his mission. I opposed and wanted to make others blaspheme God. I was an insolent opponent. Like he saw this all so clearly. He, he, he had a relationship with God. Everyone's into like, I have my own relationship with God. Listen, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I hate to break it to you, you do not have a relationship with God. And the way I know that is because Paul thought he did until he was confronted with Jesus. And the minute he was confronted with Jesus, he came to grips with who Jesus was and he saw his old religion as worthless. He saw it as worthless to be cast aside. His zeal, he saw in his own religious way, he saw it as misguided by unbelief and he saw himself as the chief of sinners. Interestingly, as the light of Christ does shine in our heart, turns, our, turns out darkness doesn't actually blend in anymore. You see it for what it is. And interestingly enough, all of this is being said, not about what Paul was, but what he is. I am, not I was, the chief of sinners. Paul never seemed to let that go. Now, is his identity in Christ a saint? All God's people said, amen. You're made holy by Christ. And yet, simultaneously, he never lost the reality of I was, I am the chief of sinners. Saved by grace, yes, but never lost sight of that. In fact, the way he talks in other places in Ephesians 3.8, he calls himself the least of all the saints. 1 Corinthians 15.9, he calls himself the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. He carried with him this ever-present awareness that I am, not I was, the foremost of sinners. Listen, in all of this, all of this about Paul's testimony, all of this about God can save the worst of sinners, this is the point of the passage in a sense. <laughs> if you go the route of trying to keep the law to make the law, um, to make yourself self-righteous by the law, you will miss the grace that's actually transforming. You will miss the grace that actually saves sinners. You will take the law, you will distort the law, and you will make the law no, no longer have the function it needs to have, which is to draw people to Jesus, which is to act like a mirror to reveal our sin, to lead us to a savior. This is the problem. This is why Paul's saying, Timothy, you gotta do this. And then he's saying this essentially in verse 16. He says, but God in his providence has decided to make me the example of this, okay? Like in God's providence in saving Paul, he thought, man, if we save this guy, and we let this guy write 13 books of the New Testament, the blasphemer, the persecutor, the insolent opponent, and we let him like, you know, dominate the New Testament writing, then no one for the rest of history would ever be able to say I'm too far from God, too much a sinner to be saved by God's grace. Why? Because Paul was God's example of his perfect patience. But, 
we're doubling up. Two and one text, are we not blessed this morning? But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for who? For everybody else who was going to believe on him for eternal life. In a sense, what I'm saying to you is Paul's salvation was for you, church. It was for you. Paul is the example. It's the word I used in the point of prototype. He's the model. He's the proof of what God will do for any and everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. You're doubting where you come from? You're doubting how bad your past was? Look at exhibit A. God has enough patience for him. He has enough patience for you. You're like, ah, no, 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 but my record is really bad. I, I think I'm beyond patience. That's okay. God's patience is perfect. And no matter how great your sin is, it cannot confront, it cannot overwhelm, it cannot overcome the perfect patience. It literally means complete patience. You got nothing on God's patience. He wants to, he is so patient with you. And we see it in the salvation of the apostle Paul. And there may be some of you, even today, praying and thinking like the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Well, then what must I do to be saved? And Paul is clear here, and he was clear there. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You say, that's it? Yes, that's it. And it's really specific that you believe only. Now, I'm not saying believe only as opposed to repentance. Repentance and belief are the same thing. It's a believing repentance. It's a repentant belief. What I'm saying is belief only, and no works can be attached to it. None of your resume. None of your extracurriculars. None of your habitats for humanity. None of your work at a, at a homeless shelter. None of that stuff. No works, no ideologies, nothing of what you've given yourself to. You believe in Jesus. Believe meaning you receive as true the claims about Christ that he is the God-man. Truly God and truly man. He was perfectly righteous without sin. He was substitutionary. He, he, he died as a substitute in our place for our sin on the cross. He rose for our salvation. And you're not just acknowledging that that death was for me. He died and he was dying my death. But you put your trust in him. You put your confidence in him. You lay all the eggs of your future hope in the basket of Jesus Christ. To receive what you could not otherwise obtain which is the eternal life that he is showing. He's talking about a life that is true life. He's talking about a life you can't merely enjoy here and now. He's talking about life in the truest sense of the word, a different kind of life, the kind of supernatural life that belongs to God and to Christ is granted to you, not something you merely enjoy in the future, but something that is your present possession now because of your faith in Jesus. So we got to get over ourselves. We got to get over this idea that we're too bad. If God's mercy can extend to someone as sinful as Paul, surely God can reach you. Surely God can reach your friend. Surely, as the point of the passage is, this salvation is by mercy and not by works. 
And then he finishes in the most appropriate way. If you're still struggling, but now you're seeing it, number three, don't hold back the praise of God. Don't hold it back. Don't hold back that praise. He gets to the end, and again, this is Paul, man. Paul loves to sing at the end of the gospel. He gets there. His heart is so gripped by the gospel, he can't help but just declaring God's glory to the king of ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen, man. It is worthy of singing about. Listen, if your heart hears the gospel and your mouth doesn't want to sing, that is a problem. God, help us grasp the gospel in such a way where praise would come out to the king of the ages, that he, the king of all ages, past, present, and future, but specifically to the Jews of this age and the age to come, the ages, all the ages of time, he's the king of all the ages, that he would stoop so low as to save the chief of sinners by sending his son to live and die and rise. What a glorious God he is. He is immortal. He is different than his creation. He is imperishable, is what it means. He is free from decay. He is free from destruction. He's invisible. You can't see him, and he is the only God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Our triune God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I want you to understand this, loved ones. When you praise God, you're adding nothing to his honor and his glory. He deserves the praise because he is glorious. You holding back your praise isn't subtracting from God's glory. You know this, right? He's worthy of it. That's why we don't hold back. We come and we sing and we gather and we celebrate because he's worthy. We come to the table to be reminded of the fact that he's worthy. To have our hearts assured again. Some of us struggling to understand the gospel and how it applies truly to us. In all that we've done, maybe this week, maybe just as a Christian, you're embarrassed. You should be further along in your faith than you are. How is it that you've been a Christian for X number of years? Whatever the lie is, you come to the table and you remember again, oh yeah, it's only by God's grace. And the sacrifice that should be paid was paid by Jesus. And when we take the cup, we're reminded of the fact that it was his wounds that healed. It's his blood that was shed that's powerful for us. It enacted the new covenant. It sufficiently paid for the penalty of our sin. Blood being shed unto death for Jesus means life for us. And we take the bread and we savor the fact that Jesus' body was given for us. Jesus was laid on a cross. The very place we should have laid, he laid and he was nailed to that cross, and he was raised up, and he was suffering and died in our place. And so that's sufficient for the Father. You don't need to add to it. It's not a measure of like, now you're a Christian, so I gotta do a bunch of really good things to like pay him back. No, 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 no. When you enjoy the gift of the gospel, you immerse into good works, and it's all to his glory and praise, not because you're trying to earn something from him, but because you know you already have it. So we come to the table, 
and we celebrate the fact that salvation is by grace alone, not by works of the law. Take it again, loved ones. We're going to take it again. We're going to come, we're going to treasure this moment. We're going to do it as a gluten-free church, for the record, okay? Just so everyone's okay. Get over that real quick so we can celebrate the goodness of God and his mercy, amen? When you're ready, come and take in the front, and Pastor Ben will lead us in communion.